0: They are rules made by different countries for different reasons on different sides of the Atlantic. But will they have the same deleterious effect on jockeys' ability to find work? Plus, remember the son of the great Zenyatta, Cosmic One, and the immense promise he had with those bloodlines. Well, he still has that promise, but in a different line of work. We'll have all that and more on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. Play Rosette. This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. About a year ago... We talked with a high-level British racing official about the potential ramifications to horse racing of the U.K.'s withdrawal from the European Union, a process colloquially known as Brexit. Understandably, the official at that time was not really sure, but it appears now that at least one Brexit-related issue involves a shrinking supply of riders— Champion trainer John Gosden said in the Sunday Telegraph recently that a supply of what he called fine-boned, wiry, and athletic British riders were moving on, meaning they were getting too big to meet the weight requirements for riders. The article stated that it's believed that the average height of a British person has risen 7% in the last century. British trainers have had to rely on Italians like Frankie de Tori and Spaniards in growing numbers as a result. That got us to thinking. The supply of riders in the United States comes largely from Latin American countries. With the federal government taking a hard line on immigration enforcement, is the U.S. in the same boat for a different reason as the U.K.? To help us sort this question out, we have two people with us whose ears are very much to the ground when it comes to race riders. We're joined by George McGrath, the chief executive of the National Association of Stable Staff, the British Trade Union, which includes work riders. And we welcome to in the gate Mindy Coleman, attorney for the Jockeys Guild here in the United States. Thank you so much for being with us. Let's start with Mr. McGrath. You were cited by the Daily Telegraph as having said that the situation with the availability of riders is, quote, the worst I've ever known it. What do you mean by that?
1: We cannot recruit from outside of the EU and haven't been able to do so since 2011 you've got a limited resource to start with in so much as the people you need to work in racing in the UK will have to enjoy a profession which involves working outdoors in all sorts of weather. It has to be for somebody who enjoys working obviously with horses. And into the bargain, you've got a weight restriction. So you don't really want people that are much above 10 stone. Now, sorry if I'm using old change and you guys are probably going to tell me what 10 stone is in kilos. Um, I don't have that figure right at the top of my head, but it's lighter than most people.
0: Now, Ms. Coleman, you know, I had the idea to do this discussion because it seems that things are also a little tentative about riders coming here to race in the U.S. as it is in the U.K. So can you explain how jockeys from other countries are allowed into the U.S. to ride?
2: Uh, yes. They're allowed, but they have to go. There's there's three types of visas or three possibilities when they come in. There can be, for example, foreign riders that are coming over to ride just a particular race, meaning, you know, the, the top jockeys in the world, the Frankie de that, you know, Kristen, um, they come in, Karen Fallon, the jocks that are coming to ride, Ryan Moore, to come in to ride a particular race, whether it's for Breeders' Cup races. The Kentucky Derby, they are granted one particular type of allowance to come under under an act. The others are for jockeys that are professional, internationally recognized athletes that are coming for an extended period to further their careers that meaning they're wishing to either stay for a particular meet. And when I say meet, that that's referring to a particular set of dates at a, a particular racetrack. For example, the summer meet at Saratoga or the summer meet in Del Mar. The other, the third is when they're coming to stay and have the intent of staying, and, and they'll apply for the intent to stay under a, either, either a P-1 visa or an O-1A visa. As George was just explaining, we have some of those similar issues, a lot of the concerns. We have even an, a greater weight restriction. Uh, as he was saying, 10 stone is, is about 140 pounds in the U.S., here in the, United, in the United States, our weight restrictions are anywhere from 110 to 128 pounds normally. So, so that's the first issue. Again, is a weight restriction. The other is the capabilities, the talents. We don't have as many schools or training, you know, as there used to be. And quite frankly, part of that is is the work ethic. As he was just saying, the time and the amount of hours that are put in to be either a jockey or an exercise rider it's a lifestyle it's, it's not just a career unlike other professional sports in, in the united states and, and other countries we don't have a short seasons. racing is going on every day in the united states the only day we don't have racing is christmas day and when you're riding at a racetrack they may have two four even six days a week racing but those jockeys and those exercise riders, they also have to work in the mornings. So there's really not a there's not days off and, and so again that that has to do with a lifestyle and, and dedication and quite frankly people just aren't willing to do that at this point. So we do have the issues of of finding people here in the United States that meet all that criteria. We do have a lot of foreign riders. With that being said, we're having more and more issues of riders being able to obtain the visas that are necessary. They're saying that these riders are, for example, if a jockey has just ridden in Panama, which is kind of a starting point for a lot of jockeys, uh, they have a, a very famous school, the, the Fit Kai Jockey Training Academy, which is in Panama City. There's many jockeys that have come out of that school. We don't have those similar schools here in the United States. And, but they tra- they go to their training or there's a school in, you know, various countries. They go through the training, and then when they try to come to the United States, they say it's not internationally recognized, per se.
0: Mr. McGrath, I'll get to you in one moment here, but I want to add one more to Ms. Coleman, because, as you know, each state here in the U.S. has different rules for workers from other countries. In Arizona, the workers have to provide documentation that they hear legally with work authorization— Next door in California, though, you just need identification and fingerprints to get a license. The employer is responsible for making sure of the legality of their workers. So how has that state-by-state issue, which you don't really get in the U.K., affected riders coming here?
2: Well, and that's an interesting question. So we go down even farther to each state has its own racing commission. We don't have one national governing body. So those racing commissions also vary on what's required as far as the licensing or the eligibility for licensing. If a jockey goes to Florida and they meet the requirements of the immigration or work requirement or Arizona and they obtain a license in one of those states and then go to a different jurisdiction or a different state to ride, those states are typically just verifying that they have a license, a jockey's license or an exercise rider's license. They're not – verifying all of the immigration status at that point. And again, that varies from state to state on what each one of the commissions require.
0: This is mind-numbing, Mr. McGrath, isn't it? I mean, compared to what we've just described now, what sense are you getting here with regard to Brexit for how it will be for jockeys and stable staff to operate in the UK?
1: Um, Okay, it is fascinating Ms. Coleman made some great points. Firstly, before I answer that, I want to go into the lifestyle choice that Ms. Coleman mentioned. In the UK and in Ireland, I feel and always have done that a lot of licensed racehorse trainers have been trading on the fact that staff do generally get out of bed and look forward to the day's work. And you can't underestimate that. But equally, you can't expect people to work 13 out of 14 mornings a day. You can't expect people to work 364 days a year because your industry demands it simply based on the fact that you might enjoy your job. So we need to address in the UK the work-life balance, which is something that um, my union is doing very successfully at the moment, and it's endorsed by most of the trainers who equally recognize that if we're going to recruit properly, and if we're going to keep retention and keep the people that we need in our sport, riding horses on a daily basis, and that's not just the jockeys, that's the staff, then we need to address... The work-life balance because again as Ms. coleman said today's society simply won't accept the working conditions that licensed racehorse trainers generally around the world have asked staff to put up with in the past so number one racehorse trainers have to modernize if they don't they will go the same way as dinosaurs you've got to get with the program you've got to modernize you've got to look your market and your availability to recruit people who are working for a living. They're working to live. They're not living to work. And that's a mindset change. It's not difficult in reality to achieve these changes. It's, It's just a mindset that trainers have generally had. It's all about tradition. The UK and Ireland to a lesser degree have a lot of tradition. Now for me, Tradition is great. I think it's quaint. I think it's nice and it's got its place. But history is what tells you how to go forward and where to stop making mistakes in the past if you apply them to what you would do in the future. So I think if you are a traditionalist, then you should watch television in black and white, because Mm -hmm. that's what you, you want. You want to keep your life the way it was 60 years ago, but you like your broadband, you like your Internet. You like your car, with your automatic trip switch, and your six forward speeds. You can't have it both ways, and that's a lesson that I'm trying to get across to the racehorse trainers of the UK. In terms of how do we address the difficulties we have? Well, weight's always going to be an issue because people are generally healthier now, and quite often eat a lot of the wrong foods. And teenagers growing up, you know what? If you're even five foot six, which is not very big and you're healthy, you're probably going to be above 140 pounds. And in the US, you need 110 to 125. So that's going to be a real difficulty. In the UK and in Europe, what the racing authorities have actually done is they've moved the weights up by just a couple of pounds or kilos in your case. And that's something that racing authorities are going to have to do. And the breeders of racehorses are also looking at this and understanding that your pool of people who are going to weigh 110 to 140 pounds, are simply diminishing. And you've got to realign your business with your pool of people that you can employ and work to progress your business.
0: Well, is your comment a foreshadowing of how austere you envision the Brexit rules getting for riders and other stable staff?
1: I would say yes to that. I wrote a column in my newsletter and basically the headline said Brexit is wonderful in theory and disastrous in reality. And that is what we have at the moment in the UK. We have uh, about 11% of our workforce is from Europe and about 13.5% are from the rest of the world. So 25% of the workforce in the UK in horse racing. It doesn't come from the UK. Now, in terms of Brexit, and Brexit actually happens for real on the 29th of March, 2019. So it's kind of around the corner. We still don't know what it looks like. There have been various papers, the Migration Advisory Committee in the UK have written to the government, the BHA, which is our licensing body. Thankfully, we don't have different ones in different states. God, life is difficult enough without that. But we already have those issues coming to the fore. And yet at this stage, if you say to me, what does Brexit mean to a writer in England who doesn't come from England? I can only answer you honestly. I don't know. Nor does the government and nor does Europe. So what's happening at the moment on the ground is if you come from, we would just say France or like myself, Ireland, and I'm saying, well, will I go and work in the UK? If I'm currently in France or in Ireland, I'm probably thinking, no, because I'm not sure my future is going to be there. We still don't know if we're going to have to license staff who don't come from the UK differently, if we're going to have to process them in some way. There is nothing whatsoever at this stage to say that there is a process in place whereby if you are a foreign national in the UK, this is what you do. This is the form you fill out, it will be submitted, and you will be okay. That doesn't exist at the moment. Brexit does, and it's the 29th of March, 2019.
0: And there was similar unknown here in the United States last summer, and to an extent still to this day. Ms. Coleman, is the racing community past that initial fear that immigration and customs enforcement officials might stage unannounced raids at tracks, apprehend, and deport workers?
2: A yes and no I don't think it it wasn't the fear that we had initially was not uh it hasn't been egregious or there hasn't been as much, but they are still continuing to happen and then which there was there was a raid this summer uh, where they came in and took a bunch of the backside employees, which left several trainers and worked and then we've also had situations where now we have trainers who don't have the personnel and staff to assist them with the number of horses that they have, and they're trying to figure out how to make sure that, you know, everything that is handled on the backsides in the morning is being done. With the jockeys, which, again, is what I particularly or generally deal with, it, is the jockeys aspect. We've been seeing an increase in denials of jockeys because of the interpretation of the the visas that they're applying for and what's deemed to be international recognition. I had a situation where a jockey had been here for several years and was a journeyman jockey, one of the top journeyman jockeys in the particular area that he rode. However, where he rode was not one of the top four racing states in the country. So there was an argument that he is not internationally recognized and they actually denied his visa, even though he had been here for and been competing in the US for, uh, I believe, eight years at that point.
1: I just wanted to pick up on that because we're talking about staff, but I wonder quite interestingly, certainly from my perspective, we are now with Brexit facing equally the same problem with the actual horses themselves. In the UK, we have about 6,000 horses that travel to Europe, so they will be taking part in, will we say, the prit in France. They'll be taking part in the Praducia which is in Czechoslovakia. They'll be taking part in Ireland. We have a very international racing scene based in the UK. And equally, horses from Ireland, most noticeably Aidan O'Brien, will come to the UK. Now, once Brexit kicks in, this is, again, not guaranteed. We currently have a tripartite agreement between England, Ireland and France, which allows our horses to move and our staff with them freely with minimal checks. So horses like people have a passport. But once Brexit kicks in, that is not guaranteed. So the BHA has been working furiously on this, trying to get an agreement. But my fear and that of racing is that this could possibly be caught up and used as a bargaining chip in a bigger aspect of Brexit so not only do we have a problem with the people we've got a problem with the horses too
2: and I'd like to follow up on one other point that mr. McGrath was saying so with ours is it's the concerns that we're having an issue here is the people that are reviewing the visas don't have a full understanding of horse racing whereas you know Ireland France, England. it seems that people in general have a better understanding of how the sport works and and how it's done here we're having situations where they're denying because they don't understand for example that apprentice jockeys are competing at the exact same level as professional jockeys and they are assuming that amateur jockey or excuse me an apprentice jockey means you are at an amateur level of sport as opposed to a professionally recognized not understanding that a a amateur or an apprentice jockey is coming to pr- compete at the exact same level as the Hall of Fame jockeys that are riding in the Kentucky Derby, Mike Smith, Johnny Velasquez, Javier Castellano. It may be a jockey's first year as an apprentice, but he's competing against those individuals. So
3: um,
2: that's one of the other things is, is there's a, it continues, or it seems to continue that we're having to further and further explain our sport in general to understand so that they have a better understanding of why these juggies are coming or the riders are coming as professional athletes. That's one of the greater challenges, too, is, is there's not a full understanding of our sport in general or understanding that these riders are not able to determine and provide a schedule of events. Whereas, So if you're coming to play in any other professional sport, there's typically already a schedule of events listed out, and you know that you're going to be competing you know, in what particular event. Where in racing, you know entries are anywhere from 72 out you know they're 3 to 4 days in advance the entries and you being, may be maybe named on a horse there's many factors that are determining in whether or not a particular jockey is named on that horse so we're not able to provide that information and that seems to be causing additional issues as well
1: I could certainly see why that would cause a lot of confusion and a lot of difficulty and frustration among trainers who have to tell owners who is riding their horse it's quite interesting because what i can see very clearly now is the difference in the u.s and in england uh, and europe is that where the bigger problem in the u.s is about licensed jockeys be they apprentice jockeys or which is jockeys learning the trade or professional jockeys whereas in the uk We equally have the same problem with the jockeys who may find it more difficult to move from England to ride in. we just again assume it's Ireland and France, although it will be the rest of Europe as well. But our problem is exasperated by the fact that at least in the U.S., you can transport the horse from, will we say, the state of Florida to the state of New York, if that's what's happening in the U.K., we're not running from Florida to New York. We're going from, will we say, Newmarket to Paris. Now, suddenly, not only do you have a problem with the jockey booking, you haven't got any staff to bring the horse to Paris because we've got Brexit and there's no agreement in place. So it's, I mean, we're in in one sense... When I was listening to Ms. Holman, I thought, well, at least we don't have the different states with the different regulations. But on the other hand, my my biggest concern is the fact that not only do we have an issue with professional and apprentice jockeys, we've got it with the staff trying to move the horse as well. So even if we had overcome the problem, we have different tiers of visa in um, the UK. We've got tiers from one to five, depending on your skill set in life. And we can probably get the professional jockeys the okay, because as you rightly identify, there's probably a better understanding in Europe, certainly in Ireland, France, of racing and how it works and who its people are. But we've now got the problem where we can get the jockey and the horse, but we can't get the horse or the staff to the country. So it's, um, it's going to be interesting, shall we say.
2: It's such a broad topic and there's so many varying factors of how they're trying to go about getting these visas and these applications approved for the individuals that are trying to come to the United States. The other big factor that we're having right now is, of course, well, why do you need to have a foreign individual? Why can't somebody here in the United States compete at that level or perform these jobs? Not understanding, again, our industry and our sport of, of how, what it takes even to be an assistant, even to a uh, trainer, even to be a groomer, an exercise rider, even to be a jockey, there's so many skills and factors that are necessary in order to be able to fulfill those duties and those obligations.
0: Well, as you can see, I when you see I would agree say... with everything you've
1: summed up. Sorry, Mindy, I would agree with everything you've summed up there. I think that, uh, that's perfect. And the the irony and the frustration that I should imagine you feel and certainly that I feel is that we aren't trying to pull a fast one on the government actually our respective industries contribute an enormous amount of income to the government they give people enormous amount of pleasure and it's all a win-win situation but we seem to be caught up in diplomacy negotiations and paperwork and bureaucracy when actually, if they just left our industries to their own devices, we do nobody any harm. We contribute hugely to the economy, the local economy and the national economy. And all this has been jeopardized by a lack of understanding and some sort of um, sort of impression that we're, we're trying to do something underhand and nothing could be further from the truth. So it's very frustrating trying to get your message across to individuals who don't know our sport and somehow look upon us as though we're doing something wrong, illegal, dodgy, or must be stopped when nothing could be further from the truth.
2: I agree, absolutely.
0: Well, I guess all we can hope for here is that there are some adults in the room when these discussions come up in the future and that racing isn't unduly slighted in the process. Well, thank you both so much for engendering this very meaningful discussion. George McGrath and Mindy Coleman, thank you so much. Barry, thank thanks you. very much thanks for having
2: me. for having us on. I appreciate it.
0: We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, you remember the son of Zenyatta, Cosmic One, and all the promise he had? Well, he still has that promise, but for a slightly different reason. We'll explain right after the break. Welcome back to the In The Gate podcast. In the thoroughbred business, you never know when a modestly bred horse like California Chrome becomes a champion. And you also never know when a horse with highly sought-after breeding, like the Green Monkey, comes nowhere close to fulfilling his potential. The Green Monkey famously cost $16 million as a yearling, yet only ran three times, never finished higher than third, and was not all that great as a stallion either. Cosmic One is a son of 2010 Horse of the Year Zenyatta, and the father is 2006 Champion 3-year-old male Bernardini. You can't get much better breeding than that. When Cos followed his mother's footsteps into the barn of trainer John Sheriffs in 2014 as a 2-year-old, it seemed that the sky was the limit. After all, Zenyatta had won her first 19 starts, including the Breeders' Cup Classic against Colts in 2009. But on the track... Cosmic One turned out to be more like the Green Monkey than Zenyatta. He made four starts. His finishes, sixth, seventh, fourth, and eighth. Kaz's last start came almost a year ago, in October of 2017, and as is the case with so many thoroughbreds, the question was what would be next for him. Enter 17-year-old show writer Isabella D'Souza. She lives in Lexington and comes from a family of horsemen. The D'Souzas reached out to David and Dottie and Gordo, the bloodstock advisors, to Jerry and Ann Moss, the owners of Cosmic One, about bringing the horse into the Thoroughbred Makeover Project, where racehorses are retrained for other equestrian disciplines. It didn't work out for 2017 because Cosmic One was still in training. But when Isabella inquired again late last year, the timing was right. This year's thoroughbred makeover competition will take place from October fourth to October seventh at the Kentucky Horse Park in Lexington, and we are pleased to be joined by rider Isabella De Souza here on in the gate. Tell us about how your family came to own Cosmic One.
3: Well, my dad's up in the thoroughbred industry, Sergio De Souza. He manages and is a partner at a Hidden Brook Farm out in Paris, Kentucky. So he goes to the sales and, you know, he sees a lot of these track trainers and he was the one who actually made the connection and he talked to John Sheriff about the horse and I don't know, he, he was just talking to the horse they're talking to um, John Sheriff and was asking like, you know, if they'd ever um, retire him and. He, he he we asked him actually a year ago for the 2017 retired racehorse Horse the retired racehorse project for a makeover if they were interested in retiring him and they weren't quite ready to retire him so they kind of I think they um talked to him about it this year and my dad got a got deal with them to train the horse in the makeover
0: Now it's one thing to develop horsemanship from your parents both of whom work in the horse world but How did you learn to retrain racing thoroughbreds for other disciplines, which is a very specific type of thing?
3: You know, I've kind of ridden everything and anything my whole life. I've ridden, I ride a lot of different horses and my dad, he's really good with thoroughbreds, you know, since he also works with a lot of the young horses and um, yearlings. And we had one before I started retraining horses and my dad kind of retrained that one and I I don't know how I got started. We just, my dad got one one day and we just, we were having fun with it and, you know, teaching them just like having fun with them. That's really the main thing that we do with our horses and, you know, we just, we have fun with them and whatever happens, happens. And whatever you teach them along the way, you teach them, you know?
0: Well, what do you look for the most when you're targeting a particular thoroughbred for a makeover, especially considering there are different disciplines of competition?
3: We look a lot at their pedigree. You know, a lot of the, the pedigree can kind of tell you if they're going to be a hotter horse, if they're going to be a calmer horse. You know, Bernardini's, those horses tend to be really, really calm and really great minded horses. And we look at the confirmation of the horse. You know, if they have an uphill build, they'll typically jump better. And we look at how they, how each part of their body fits. You know, if it's, if it's a pretty picture, if they have a nice back, if they have a nice neck. We want them to have straight legs, you know, and the way that they sit on their hawks, that can also tell for at least the show hunter and show jumping disciplines, it can tell a lot about how it'll jump. So, and we always watch the way that they walk, if they have a spring in their step, if they, if they, um, really use their shoulder well. Kind of, that's kind of the basis for how we, we find our horses. We never free jump them. We've never done that before we buy them.
0: How did your family decide to make its goal of retraining thoroughbreds for other equine disciplines?
3: You know, we've always loved the breed. We think they're really great, and they're all very talented, and, you know, they have so much life left to them after the track that we, we, we thought it would be a great thing to just repurpose some of them, and we've sold a couple of ours to different homes, and we really enjoy getting to see the progress that the horse makes from, you know, just coming off the track to going and doing, like, the three-foot hunters or doing the, you know, eventing. It's, it's just really fun to give them another purpose, so we really enjoy doing that.
0: We're joined here on In The Gate by Isabella D'Souza, who'll be riding Cosmic One, Son of the Great Zenyatta, in the upcoming Thoroughbred Makeover competition in early October in Lexington, Kentucky. Now, even though you're only 17, you've won this competition three times already, including with a couple of horses once trained by Todd Fletcher. As a winner yourself, and considering whom you'll be riding, you have to know that all eyes will be on you this year. How do you think that'll affect you?
3: You know, I try to not really think about, you know, the horse I'm riding. I, I don't I don't let it really get to me that, you know, he's really famous. I really like to keep his fans, though, informed of how he's doing because it's so great to see his, his following, you know. It's, it's really special. But I, I try not to think about too much, you know. I just try to teach the horse what I know and I have fun with it you know I don't put too much pressure on myself or at least I try not to because of course I'd like to go and do well but at the end of the day our main goal with this horse was to get him to help promote the thoroughbreds and help promote the the, the off-the-track thoroughbreds and show them that they can do different disciplines and at the end of the day if we if we can at least make it to the makeover that's one big goal of mine off checked off.
0: Well, when Cosmic One was two years old and stabled up at Saratoga with John Sheriff, my son walked over and fed him a peppermint. <laughs> now, with both of your folks involved in horses, I might have assumed that you'll follow them into the horse world when you finish school.
3: Yeah, I would, I would love to stay in the horse industry and, you know, train young horses. And I'd love to jump a couple big classes. You know, I just, I really enjoy working with the horses and something that I really want to do for the rest of my life.
0: So how well is Cosmic One taken to his new job?
3: You know, he's really smart. He's really great. And he, he does everything I ask of him. And, you know, he, he did get gelded a little late, so he is a little opinionated. But it's not to the point where he doesn't listen to you. He just kind of thinks about it for a second. But, you know, he's got a great mind on him, and he he's not afraid of anything. You know, you could he would jump through fire. That horse is so brave. He's such a good head on him. You know, you... He took him to Briarfest earlier this year, which there are fifteen thousand people and he was so good about handling everything and he wasn't he wasn't anxious. He was very easy to handle and you know, he's he's a really great horse to train and I really enjoy working with him.
0: I'm sure our thoroughbred audience just opened their eyes in disbelief when you said that a son of Bernardini and Zenyatta was gelded. Now <laughs> what specific discipline will he be competing in?
3: He will be competing in the show jumpers and the show hunters.
0: What would it mean to you if a son of Zenyatta were to come out on top in this new kind of competition for him?
3: You know, I think it would be really incredible. And I think the horse has a lot of talent. He's he's very smart. And, I mean, it would be a plus if we win. I would love to, you know, be in the top five. But my main goal with this horse is to help promote these horses, you know, and show that they can do much more with their lives. and. I mean, it would be incredible if we did really well, but I'm just trying to think about having a good round when I go and just show how far the horses come, and he, has, he can still go a lot farther.
0: And we certainly wish you the very best of luck with it. Thank you so much for a few minutes, Isabella D'Souza. We'll see you in Lexington.
3: Thank you very much.
0: Our thanks to Isabella D'Souza, Mindy Coleman, and George McGrath. A friend recently told me he's been picked for a big trip to cover the Japan Cup in November. He said he's been bestowed the title of Distinguished Media Member. Now it doesn't take a genius to remember how little the public thinks of us, the media these days. The general distrusts at an all-time high. So to hear the term Distinguished Media Member sounds refreshing. And I'll admit a little jealousy, I'm not gonna lie. But if the Japanese are paying to bring my friend out to the race, his independent voice can't be the same as it would be if his employer was the one footing the bill. If there's controversy, where does my friend place blame? This podcast would be more urgent for the ESPN bean counters if sponsorship money was tied to it. But we at the Worldwide Leader have no skin in the racing game, and my independence works to your benefit.